Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. We're talking real estate. That's right, you asked for more real estate. We've got just the guy for you. We're talking commercial real estate in one of the hottest cities in the United States. We're talking about Chicago. My guest today is David Liebman, and he's the tenant and buyer rep at Merit Brokers. He helps people just like you get the best possible deal on your commercial space. He's going to give us some tips. He's going to give us some strategies to do just that. He's also available if you need his help. We'll tell you how you can get it. So please join me in welcoming David Liebman to the Inside BS Show. David, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, Dave, thank you for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to this. All right. So, Talk to me about when you're when you're uh, you're a little child. You're on the baseball field. You're talking with your buddies, and one guy says, "I want to be a fireman." Another guy says, "I want to be a policeman." You say, "I'm going to be a tenant rep." <laughs> How does somebody become? It's a great job. I love it. It's a necessary job, and I'm sure it does. You do really well because people need help. How do you decide to become a tenant rep? Well, that, great question. Uh, that's not quite the way it happened, but uh, using that as a sort of a, a kickoff point, um, actually in a previous life, two previous lives actually before my commercial real estate life, first in a family held design and manufacturing business, I learned a lot about the construction industry. I learned a lot about manufacturing. Those things served me well going forward. And while I was there, I was actually doing a lot of contract administration work. So I thought it would be useful to have a legal background. So I applied to and started going to Knight Law School and uh, did that for about two and a half years. And I actually probably one of the only people you've ever met who actually liked law school, but I did. And I decided I wanted to practice law. So. Uh, the family was, it was my family's manufacturing business. I told my dad, I think it's time for you to retire and me to move on into the practice of the law. So I started down that road, found out not only did I not like practicing law, I really wasn't all that good at it. But what I did learn is I learned to use my skills learned in the manufacturing business to dovetail into real estate because I started doing some real estate deals and some zoning deals and some development deals. And I really enjoyed those. And I really enjoyed all the cool people I met who were doing a lot of neat things and quite frankly, making a lot more money than I was at the time. And I said, you know, I really got to give this a look. So an already too long story short, I, I talked to a number of people, various industries and commercial real estate, and found that I really liked the people in the industrial property world the best. They seemed to be the most, you know, down the middle people, I guess, for lack of anything else to call it. And I just liked the idea of being able to negotiate deals. That was the favorite thing I enjoyed about my law practice. So I made the transition, uh, my gosh, 33 years ago into commercial real estate and I've been doing it ever since. And now representing people who are buying space or people who are leasing space, how did you how did you decide I want to be I want to be on that side of it? Was it just that you had a, a a lot of familiarity with the you know with the the market and you know people started asking you for advice and you kind of fell into it or was it a conscious strategy? It was actually a little more conscious than that day because for all the years, other than about the last seven that I've been in the commercial real estate space, 
I've operated on both sides of the transaction, representing landlords and sellers in one case or buyers and tenants in the other. Now that has built into the kind of inherent conflict of interest in that if I'm representing a landlord and I also represent a tenant who's looking to lease space in that building, how can the tenant really be well represented when I represent the other side too? It always kind of bothered me. It didn't really stop me from doing it until about seven or eight years ago when I made another transition into a a business, a real estate business that was involved in a large redevelopment project. But the individuals who asked me to join them allowed me to do my own thing as far as representing other tenants and buyers or representing landlords and sellers as the case might be, although I was really representing them as a landlord at the time. And I decided, well, this is a great opportunity to to focus on one side of the transaction, really get rid of all those conflict of interest issues. And I always was intrigued with the the tenant and buyer side because there's a lot more challenge there to really keep in mind that you're really representing the best interests of seller of uh, excuse me buyers and tenants who are really looking for not only the best deal that they can get, but they need a lot of help and guidance because most of them only do these kinds of transactions once every you know, five to 10 years as the case might be. And so uh, I, that's the way I, I've been focusing ever since for about seven years. And the other thing I added to my uh, quiver is I added the arrow of representing buyers and tenants of office space as well as industrial space. Those are really the only two property areas that I've focused on throughout my career. Okay, so is it um, is it better for you, or I shouldn't say better because I don't want you to I don't want to put you in a box and have one of your clients listen to this and go he said it was better to work with somebody else. So is it uh, are there advantages? Let's put it this way: Are there advantages to working with people who are unfamiliar with the market as opposed to working with people who are already in the market? and perhaps moving from one building to the next. Is it easier, uh, is it, are there advantages to working with people coming in from the outside? It's a really good question because for the buyers and tenants who, like we said a minute ago, really don't do these kinds of deals more than once every five to 10 years, they need more help than the sellers and landlords do generally. Sellers, well, sometimes they need help from their brokers too. And there are a lot of great brokers in and around Chicago and for that matter, in and around the U.S. who can really counsel their sellers and landlords very well. But the tenants and buyers really need representation. And a lot of tenants and buyers don't understand. For example, if they lease space already in a building and their lease is coming up in six or nine months, I got to go to my landlord and see what I can do to kind of negotiate a better deal on my renewal. I really don't want to move. And they do that. They go to their landlord and they talk about, okay, yeah, we'll raise your rent another two and a half percent. And, you know, you sign this document and go on your way and we'll renew it for another five years. They leave thousands and thousands of dollars of money on the table when they do that. They don't realize that they actually can hire someone like me and negotiate a better deal. They can basically what we always say, we like to create an auction for their business against their current landlord and other landlords in the market or other sellers in the market. And so really, they have an opportunity to take advantage of that most of them don't understand that they have. And that's the challenge of, of trying to 
express to them this advantage that they have and to use it to their advantage. And you know what it costs them? Zero. Because it's the seller and the landlord that pays our fees, not the tenant. In in 99.9% of the And cases. the landlords are, or they should be, scared to death of the vacancy cost, right? So that the, the, any time they have space that's unoccupied, it's a perishable product. You can't rent that space today, tomorrow, because today's gone, right? In addition, mm -hmm. somebody right. moves out, somebody moves in, there's going to be build outs, there's going to be improvements, there's going to be all kinds of things that have to be done to that space. I, you know, it, it's always kind of, um, I want to say it's always kind of puzzled me that the, you know, the tenants or the, you know, the occupiers of space who are negotiating with a landlord or a developer, they don't realize if they're already in the space, they have leverage. The, you know, the landlord doesn't really have the leverage in that case because the landlord's got the burden of re-renting the space and doing the build out, doing the, the improvement and, you know, all the expense associated with that. Uh, you know, is it your experience that even even sophisticated businesses, they don't realize that, look, staying in the space gives us leverage? You know, I think I'm going to start taking you with me on pitches because, you know, <laughs> having having done in a I mean, previous life myself, having done, you know, office lease stuff and using someone like you in New York, I learned a lot. You know, the best advice that person gave me was, listen, don't move. I'm going to get you so much. And I was like, but I need more space. And he was like, fantastic. We're going to get you even a better deal. <laughs> You know, it's it, it's amazing. I mean, you really hit the several nails on the head. Um, the cost to a landlord of what we call retenanting space, that is watching the tenant go away, having to market the property, bring another tenant into the space, doing more improvements to the space in order to make it work for that particular tenant, it's tens of thousands of dollars. The last thing they want to do is do that. The first thing they want to do is try to re renegotiate the deal with their current tenant. So yes, that's the leverage that they have just right there as of day one or, or day, it could be day, you know, 5,001 right. based upon how many days they've been in the space. Already. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you know, for the tenant, they don't have to worry about moving their office. They don't have to worry about all that, all that garbage. I work with, I work with a lot of lawyers and law firms and you know, they take a lot of pride in the fact that, oh, we're growing, we need more space and we're going to move into this building and it's going to be nicer and we're going to move from a class B building to a class A building. And I'm sitting there shaking my head and I ask them, how many times do people actually come into the office? And even if it's once a week for depositions or something, just fix up your conference room. <laughs> you don't. You don't need nicer space. You want it. You know lever, the, that money is. You don't want to tie up all that extra money and all the expense that you're going to have in moving. Oh, they're going to give us two months of free rent, and they're going to paint the place, and we only got to sign for seven years. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it, it's like the old story about resource allocation. I mean, that, I mean, you really. You really nailed it by saying that because there's so many more things that professional services firms like law firms or manufacturing firms or distributors or whatever, there's so many more things they can do with their money other than pay for, you know, extra bells and whistles in their space because the space is there for a reason. And those reasons can be very discreet. 
And they have to understand, especially now, when we've had to deal with a pandemic, and now some companies are going to either a hybrid or, or a full off location mo uh, mode where all of their employees or staff are literally working for their homes or other places. This is a real inflection point for our industry. So, David, I want you to, um, I'm going to ask you this question and I want you to, I want you to think about it. Now, I know, you know, a magician is never supposed to reveal how they do their tricks, right? But I want you to think about one or two things you can share with the folks who are listening, who are watching, that when they hear that what you're able to do, they're going to sit back and they're going to go, wow, why didn't I think of that? So, Think about that for one minute while I remind folks that we are brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. Since 1983, Sandrowski has been providing expert client service to privately held businesses, families of wealth, and people who want to save money on their taxes. So if you're concerned that you may be paying too much in, in your taxes, whether it's your business taxes or your personal taxes, you need to call Sandrowski. And let me explain to you why. Sandrowski provides the same exact service, probably better service than the big four accounting firms, with the exception that they can dig into little known areas of the law that the big four firms wouldn't even touch. I talk about, if you listen to the show, you'll know I talk all the time about the small business stock exemption. And this is a great example of one of the things that Sandrowski uses, one of the tools they use to help their clients. So you have a business and you're doing 50 million in annual revenue or less, and you know someday you're going to exit that business. You're going to sell your shares of stock in that business. Well, if you're organized in a certain way, if your business is organized in a certain way, and you're in a handful of really popular industries, Sandrowski can help you prepare your business so that when it's sold, you can save millions of dollars on capital gains taxes. Harry Sandrowski told me a story last week when I was with him in Chicago. He said that he was working with a business owner whose company was worth $40 million. He sold his company and received a huge windfall as a result. Sandrowski was able to save him $10 million in taxes because they helped him organize his business appropriately to take advantage of the small business uh, tax exemption, stock shares exemption. It's called uh, the SPQS, and he was able to help them leverage that. So here's the thing. The best time to have Sandrowski help you with this would have been when you formed your business, but you didn't know about them then. No problem. You just need a five-year window where your business is organized and structured appropriately. So call Sandrowski now, and then in five years, you can do the same thing. You can save a ton of money on your taxes. Call them at 866-717-1607, 866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, they are a CPA firm with a different perspective. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. You're listening to this show because you want to learn more about business. Well, I want to help you grow your business using relationship-based business development strategy. So I'm going to give to you something for free. It's the exact guide I use with my clients. It's the same business development plan I use with them all the time. Here's what you need to do. Go to revenueroadmapguide.com. It's a website, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info, download your guide for free. You can customize the same guide I use with my clients. You can use it for your business today. It's my gift to you for listening and watching. 
RevenueRoadmapGuide.com. Enter your contact info, download it today. We're speaking with David Liebman. He's a tenant and buyer representative up in Chicago. He works at Merit Brokers. And the phone number you can use to reach him is 847-721-6088, 847-721-6088. All right, David, take us behind the curtain. Give us a, one thing that you do that people go, wow, David, you're a magician. How did you pull that off? Well, uh, one good example is a recent deal I did on behalf of a pediatrician's office. They had been in their same space for over 20 years. Every five years, they go to their landlord, they'd sign an extension of their lease and go on their merry way, paying more and more rent every time they signed that renewal. I told my friend who was the uh, head uh, pediatrician in the office, I said, you know, you are, you are just frittering away a lot of money when if I go in and help you and make them compete for you as a tenant, you will be surprised at what we can accomplish. And uh, what he didn't know, what my friend did not know, is that among other things, their complex had actually been taken back by the lender and it was in receivership. Oh, wow. And the end result of that is they assign a receiver to handle the property and try to do everything they can to keep all the tenants from leaving without the property falling apart too. And they had, as it turns out, they assigned somebody who is someone I had known from my first two weeks in the real estate business. Uh -oh. So I already had a relationship with the receiver. I also knew that given their situation and this complex, my friend and his pediatrician's office would have a good opportunity to negotiate not only a better rent rate, but maybe some other little perks, such as tenant improvements that they haven't had done to their space in over 20 years. The end result was they went from paying about $10,000 a month in rent to $7,000 a month in rent almost overnight. Wow. And they got almost $100,000 of money free, no cost to them, to completely update and renew their space. And again, their cost for hiring me to do this, zero. That's amazing. What a great story. Perfect example. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, a couple sure. of questions about that. Is it is it more difficult or um, less difficult or the same to negotiate with an entity instead of with an individual landlord? You know, I think back to years ago uh, when I was with Marriott, I, I started a division of Marriott in New York City, and we took over some office space from a company that Marriott bought kind of as a beachhead for this particular project, right? And, it, and that space was in a, in a really cool building on Fifth Avenue in New York City, like, you know, premier real estate. But it was, a, you know, one of these standalone buildings. And we took a floor and eventually we ended up taking over the whole building. But we initially took a floor. There was one family that owned it. And the person who managed it was like the matriarch of that family, right? Mm -hmm. At first, it was very difficult, David, really hard to negotiate with her. And then I, you know, I sat back and I thought to myself, well, she's a person, right? So I think if we treat her, instead of treating her like a landlord, we treat her like a person, we might get further. 
So what we ended up doing is on the holidays, we would send something over to like her, her address was the, the corporate address was her house basically in Manhattan. We would send something to her house. On her birthday, we sent her flowers. She was so blown away by this that she became the easiest person and everything we asked for, we got. She threw people out of the building so we could take more space on. So that was, it was really easy to negotiate with her as opposed to negotiating with an institutional investor. But I can also see the other side, right? Like in your receivership case, buildings in receivership, that person doesn't want a headache. They're going to they're gonna give you as much as they possibly can to get you to not leave because they got other space they got to worry about. So in your expert mm-hmm. opinion, right? I did that one time. So that was my experience. But mm-hmm. in your opinion, having done this hundreds of times, what's, what's easier? Which way works better for you? Well, and you gave a really great example because it's an example of building relationships and relationships with your, some people want to look at them as your adversary. I don't look at other brokers or other landlords or sellers as my adversary. We're trying to create a mutually agreeable transaction between, in one case, a buyer and a seller, the other case, a landlord and a tenant. I spent really my entire career building relationships, building bridges, not trying to break them down. I mean, sure, you have some situations where things get kind of testy for various reasons. But the whole idea is if you do build that relationship with the other person or persons that you're talking to, in my case, mostly it's the other broker. But in some cases, we will be dealing directly with a principal of a seller or landlord. And in pretty much every case that I can think of, it's a matter of showing, like you just said, the respect, the appreciation, the understanding for what that other person, not entity, is thinking of or doing or really wants to accomplish. If you can find out that information and be able to use it to one's advantage without obviously being manipulative about it, you can accomplish great things for clients. And that's what I've been able to do pretty much my whole yeah. career. Um, tell us a little bit about the Chicago real estate market now. Uh, you know, when I come to Chicago, I tend to stay in the River North area, and I, I like that area a lot. As a you know, as a I guess I'm a tourist or somebody. I'm there on business, but I you know I, I walk to the restaurants and stuff. Somebody told me that there's a, there's kind of a stigma in, involved with the River North area right now. Is that is that true, or is it is it uh, is it a decent area to to work and you know and to live these days? I I had heard of rumors or similar rumors about that, about other actual little areas within the downtown area in Chicago. I don't think it's true. I think it's more of an anecdotal story than anything else. Um, River North, the, the problem with River North is it's so chock full of restaurants right. and so many restaurants went sideways during the pandemic that there is a fair amount of vacancy in that submarket in downtown Chicago that we haven't seen in quite some time. So if there's any kind of a stigma involved, it would probably be that because foot traffic and just overall people traffic have not returned to pre-pandemic levels. And some people believe that it may never. Um, on the other hand, I was literally just downtown the day before yesterday working with a client. We did a property tour, a law firm that I represent, looking at other space and buildings throughout that general area. We actually were in the, set, the the downtown central business district, not so much the River North area, which is a little bit farther north by about five or eight blocks. And I am really very, very heartened about the increase in 
just people and foot traffic in the loop that I hadn't seen in really two years. Yeah. I mean, because literally like six or eight months ago, it was a ghost yeah. town and it was kind of scary. But yeah, I think, I think things are definitely coming back. Will they return to pre-pandemic levels? Depends who you talk yeah. to. Certain areas of the downtown central business district have gotten hit really hard. The LaSalle Street area, which is sort of was the corner of Maine and Maine for both the financial and the legal profession for many, many years. Two very large buildings have uh, gone back to their lenders in the last mm. year. And, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, probably adaptive reuse of properties, a lot of uh, uh, re rejuvenation, I would say, of that uh, marketplace or that area within Chicago. And it's going to happen pretty much all over the city. Um, but that's that's the office market. If you want to ask about the industrial market, well, that's a tale of a totally different city. The industrial market has been on fire for the better part of the last five to seven years, not only in Chicago, but across the country and really across yeah. the world. Um, the pandemic obviously created people ordering stuff at home like crazy, like never before. So the need for for goods and products to be available, readily available in warehouses and other places, shot through the roof. And because developers were so burned in the last recession, they didn't want to overbuild at this point in time. So they've been very, very judicious about the number of warehouses and properties that they developed over the last five to 10 years. And the result is the demand has far outstripped the supply. And we see, <laughs> rates of, you know, the lowest vacancy rates of pretty much any time in my entire three decade career. I've never seen anything like this. And so a lot of buyers and tenants of mine, we're struggling to find them properties. It's a real challenge. Yeah, we're seeing, I'm seeing the same thing here in Miami, the Doral area, which is, which tends to be our, our warehouse area. They can't, they can't put warehouse space up fast enough. I mean, and that, a lot of that was driven because, Amazon came in a couple of years ago and basically took up all the vacant space, <laughs> like every, almost everything. Even if it wasn't contiguous, they took, you know, a warehouse here, a warehouse here, a warehouse here, and with the hope of consolidating space and then moving those people into the other spaces that they were taking up as maybe a subtenant or something. Uh, and that has driven a ton of demand. I mean, we were, if you think about just five or six years ago, it's got to be five years ago now, my son was taking um, pitching and hitting lessons in a, where, a vacant warehouse that was converted into like an indoor batting facility. And they threw those guys out because they could command such a premium to convert it back to warehouse space. So it's just, it's, you're, you're a hundred percent right. It's just so hot, you know, and, and in terms of the cities, I, um, I go to New York quite a bit and I would, you know, my last trip to New York, I used to live on the, on the East side for, for 15 years. I lived on the East side of Manhattan. I met up with one of my buddies and uh, I said, hey, I heard downtown was like a zombie apocalypse. And he's and we were going to go out for a drink. He's like, let's go. Let's go down. I'm going to show you the zombie apocalypse. It was fine. There was, you know, there was there were plenty of people around. So, you know, my philosophy is always, especially in real estate, always bet against 
what the average person on the street is telling you. If they say it's never going to come back, you can be sure it's going to come back with a vengeance. <laughs> you know, it's the, it's like the Times Square theory, right? Oh, nobody wants to go there. Now everybody wants to be there. <laughs> I mean, since, and you're absolutely right, uh, Dave, it, it's, it's a cyclical business. And since 2000, when we had the dot-com bust, uh, there have been now uh, four recessions. Some people are saying we might be sticking our toe into a fifth. I mean, we'll see, obviously. There are a lot of things going on in the world that could create that. I mean, some of the signs are there already. But the fact of the matter is, real estate, like any other cyclical business, has always come back and uh, usually better than it was before. So I, I happen to agree. Uh, the office market will be forever changed, I believe. Um, will it be at a point that it was a few years ago when investors were paying, you know, premium numbers for downtown office buildings? I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I mean, already there have been a few sales this year already. They're kind of making people open their eyes wide in some newly developed office buildings that are actually about 85 to 95% lease. That's great. So it's still happening. It is happening, but it's in pockets in certain areas. There are hotter areas than other areas. I mean, that's always been the case, but uh, we'll just have to see how it all plays now, out. Now, I, I, I'd be remiss if I let you go without asking about this. You got to tell me about being a, being a hockey referee, right? So how <laughs> did that, how did you come to be a hockey referee? And I, I, you're still doing it, right? Why do you, why do you referee hockey yeah. games? Yeah, I'm actually, uh, this is my 20th year. Um, refereeing hockey games. I, uh, I came into it because, uh, my older son, when he was younger, um, we got him out on the ice when he was little. He learned to skate relatively quickly. Um, I always liked hockey. I actually, going farther back than that, when I was uh, 18, I took up hockey for the first time. I really didn't know what I was doing. I was a self-taught skater and it even shows today I'm a very average skater, but I always loved the game and, uh, I played in adult leagues for many years. And then when my son was little and we took him out and got him on skates and he seemed to take to it pretty, pretty well. And he wanted to play hockey. So we put him in, you know, a little hockey class. And, and as time went on, as he started to skate in the house league and the local rinks by our house, I, I was asked, would you come out and help? We could use some help on the ice with the kids. I said, sure, why not? And so I went out and helped them and I became a coach or assistant coach as the case might be. And so for, many years while he was in the house league from the time he was like nine until he was about 14 or 15. Um, and he got to high school. Um, I, I coached and I enjoyed it, but once he got to high school, that was beyond my pay grade. I didn't know enough about coaching and I really wasn't skilled enough. And, and plus he, you know, there were professional coaches that were hired to coach the high school hockey team. So he went on his way and I decided, you know, I really miss being on the ice with the kids. And I said, well, Maybe officiating is a good way to keep me on the ice. So that's why I took it up and also gave me a reason to stay in shape. And I, I was still playing in those days, but a few years ago, because of some elbow problems, I had to give up playing. It was either that or golf and I wasn't ready to give up golf. So, uh, so, but I continued to officiate and I, I found so many parallels between what I do on the ice and what I do in my commercial real estate world. I, I kind of, refer to both as creating order out of chaos. And, uh, you know, you got to think on your feet or on your skates, as the case might be. You have to manage tough situations. 
you have to be willing to put your ego aside and deal with the strong emotions and egos of people that you're dealing with, both on the ice between in competitive hockey games as well as in a competitive real estate transaction. So yeah, there are a lot of a lot of parallels, and I've I've kind of enjoyed uh, enjoyed that. How do you uh, how do you handle the parents today? Because I find that. The parents, uh, like when, so I, I coached baseball. I, I love hockey too, but I, I was, I'm, I'm the one of the worst skaters you're ever going to find. I didn't play enough as a kid. <laughs> so I was never really able to play any, anything other than pickup games. But it, with baseball, I coached my son's baseball team for a few years and we had to take all sorts of classes, not only about the health and safety of the kids, but about, you know, the, the intense classes are about managing the other parents, right? So, because they expect the coaches, and I'm sure it's this way with hockey too, they expect the coaches of the team to manage the parents of the kids for that team, right? If the, you know, if the coach is a calm, rational person, the parents are less likely to freak out. They may freak out, but you're not going to get them coming on the field. They're not going to have a, you know, you're going to be able to, the coach is always going to be, if the coach is the voice of reason, the parents will often calm down, right? You, as an official, right? This is not, nobody's given out scholarships during the games that you're officiating, yet the parents are <laughs> acting like that call you made is gonna cost their kids a scholarship. How do you handle that? Like, it's it's gotten absurd, it really has. Like, how do you handle that ridiculousness from the parents? It has gotten kind of over the top. I think uh, I'm sure you see it in baseball because, you know, we have uh, some local baseball leagues around here where I've heard some nutty stories of parents doing some really unbelievable things. And obviously the same is true. You're absolutely right. It happens in ice rinks all the time. Uh, the good news is as officials, we are vested with the authority to deal with that in various ways, not the least of which is if they really do get over the top and really get crazy, and even after we have told the coaches or the team managers to control the parents, if they don't do that, we then have the authority to have them removed from the rink. And on more than one occasion, I've had to do that during my 20 years. Yeah. Even in house league games. I mean, it's more happens in travel yeah, league yeah. games because those are the ones where, of course, the kids are usually more competitive. They actually are trying to get college scholarships or trying to get to division one or division three schools. Um, so yeah, it can get, uh, it can get very heated. Yeah. One of the, one of the best strategies we, and I, listen, I live in a particularly uh, baseball crazy part of Miami. Uh, we have a lot of kids who are the sons uh, and daughters of professional baseball players who live in this area. One of the best strategies that we've ever had is when when things start to get crazy, I would just pull our kids off the field. I would go to the umpire and I would say, "Listen, just take it easy for a sec. Go over near the other dugout. I'm going to pull our kids off the field, and I'm going to I'm going to turn to my parents and tell my parents that we're going to we're just going to forfeit the game because I can't have our kids see this as an example of the way to behave." And when things get heated, I would just pull the kids off the field, walk around, talk to the walk around the bench, talk to the parents, and say, "Listen." You know, your kids are watching everything that you do. And I understand that you feel like it didn't go our way there. I feel the same way. But you have to let me handle it on the field. And you have to set the example for your kids just like I do. Nine times out of ten, that works. And then the tenth time, 
there's one or two people who are just over the top, maybe, you know, having indulged too much in a in a in an early evening game, let's say. And then you got to count on the other parents to try and take that other parent out. Or I just wouldn't put the kids back on the field and, and tell the umpire there's nothing I can do. I don't want to I don't want to contribute to this situation. And, you know, at that point, the parents who were aggravated got aggravated at the guy who wouldn't shut up and that kind of took care of itself. But I mean, that it's, it's terrible that it has to get to that. And we would try to do everything we could. We would meet with the parents before the season began and tell them, listen, you know, we're all setting an example for the kids here and, you know, yelling and screaming at the umpires is never a good thing. Yelling at the other team is never going to be tolerated, you know, just be positive and cheer for your kids. And that would last like the first week. <laughs> you know, everybody would yeah. be on their best behavior the first two or three games. Right. <laughs> you know, the hardest part is I think uh, people, well, parents in particular, are either, as you say, possibly overserved and they come to the rink like that, or underinformed. That's the other issue because so many parents think they know more than the referee knows on the ice or know more about the game or the rules or whatever. And the scary thing, not only do they not know enough about the rules and the calls that we make and why, a lot of times, a lot of the coaches don't either. I really enjoy when I'm lucky enough to be doing a game where at least one or sometimes both coaches are current or were former officials. Because there are a number of coaches around our area here in Chicago, and I think it's true across the country too, who, are, who do officiating as well as coaching. They're the ones that we have no problem with because they know how difficult it is being an official and they know how difficult it is being a coach. And we have to be respectable. It's a two-way street. We just have to be able to deal with them that way. The parents, I, I shrug sometimes and just say, you know what? They just don't know. I was a hockey parent once too, and I would carpet the referee sometimes, but never really out loud because, of course, at that time I was officiating, so I knew what they were dealing with. And they're human too. They make mistakes. I mean, whether you're watching an NHL game or you're watching a youth hockey game or whatever, mistakes will be made. You can't call a perfect game. It is impossible to do that. No, and so. and you know, this is not there. Like, it's not a it's not a life or death thing. There's there's another game later this week, and we'll you know it. My my uh, my counsel to the team, and then later on to the parents was always. If the game is close enough for a bad call to cost us the game, that's on us. It shouldn't it shouldn't come down to that. It should never ever come down to that if we're if we do everything we're supposed to do. So, you know, that's the problem I think David that people don't understand for the coach is we see the same people every every week right there are certain fields we would go to i'm sure there's certain rinks teams go to the officials are the same there and the officials are are they remember the people who gave them a hard time they remember the people who you know who were professional and setting a good example for the kids and it's not going to it shouldn't taint the way they call the game but who's going to get the benefit of the doubt the person that screams and yells at the official or the guy who's professional is setting a good example for the kids i mean you know you don't have to answer that because i don't want anybody who's watching to go oh you see i knew it but i mean it's human nature 
nature. These are not people yeah. who do no. this for a living. These are people who do this because it's right. fun for them. If you treat them like normal people, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> yeah, you just have to let them know that they have to do the same to the referees. And really, as soon as the puck drops, it's like they forget the nice conversation you had prior to the game. About, oh, yeah, yeah, we we played these guys before. We have a good rivalry and it's fun, et cetera. And then the puck drops and the coaches go yeah. manic. I mean, it's just unbelievable. All right. So, so listen, and, and I want you to uh, I want you to come up with three things we can take away from our time together, either about hockey or about real estate. Think of three things we should take away from our conversation today, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I'm going to give you a minute to think about that. While you're thinking, I want to remind folks that we're brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. They're the CPA firm that can help you save money on your taxes. If you are an affluent individual, let's say you've done well and you're a, you're a high net worth individual and you need some help managing your your life, your assets, your investments. It may be time for you to have a discussion about setting up a family office. Usually at the, you know, 75 million, 100 million dollar net worth range, it makes sense to do that. Sandrowski has done this dozens and dozens and dozens of times. They've written a book on setting up family offices. So, if you represent affluent individuals or you happen to be an affluent individual yourself, Give Sandrowski a call. They can help you with the formation of a family office. They can put a board of advisors together for you. They can help you with the professionals that will make your life a lot easier. You can reach them at 866-717-1607, 866-717-1607. We're also brought to you by my Revenue Roadmap Guide. Time's running out. You got to get your copy of the Revenue Roadmap Guide. Go to that website, revenueroadmapguide.com. Download your free business development plan today. We're talking with David Liebman. He's a tenant and buyer's representative. His company is Merit Brokers. You can reach out to him at 847-721-6088. 847-721-6088. Okay, David, what are the three things we should take away from our time together today? First, communication. Um, when I was practicing law, the best lesson that I ever received was from a senior partner we used to tell us, and we were writing motions and briefs and what have you, he said, write for the reader, which basically meant know who your audience is. And when you do know who your audience is, you will be able to communicate much better with them effectively and get things done. I've used that my entire career in commercial real estate. I'm, if anything, an over communicator because there's so many opportunities to miss what the other person is saying or come up with what I call mutual mystification, where somebody is using code or words that don't seem to make sense. Oh yeah, I'll run it up the flagpole. I hear that all the time, drives me crazy. But what does that mean? So communicate, communicate effectively and often. Secondly, integrity. I've tried to use as much integrity I can in my business and in my personal life for many years because I find if nothing else, you garner the respect of your peers, and of your adversaries and of people you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And without that integrity, you really can't function well. And lastly, sort of a combined one of uh, health and family. Um, always look after your health. Always try to stay as healthy as you can and look after your family. And those things will work hand in hand very well with each other. Very good advice, David. Thank you so much. Our guest today is David Liebman. He's an expert on real estate in the Chicago area. He's a tenant and buyer's representative. And don't forget, if you are in the Chicagoland area and you're listening to this or you're watching this and you need help with a property outside of the Chicagoland area, 
David is a member of an organization and he can help you with representation in pretty much any city. He can reach out to people he knows, likes, and trusts in any city and they can help you rent space, buy space, you know, fix up space if you uh, if you need it taken care of. They can negotiate with landlords on your behalf in any city. You can reach out to David for advice on that, for counsel, or just to ask questions at 847 847- 721-6088-847-721-6088. David, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, David. This was great. I appreciate it. All righty, folks, that'll do it for another episode of the Inside BS Show. You never know who we're going to talk to and what we're going to talk about. So come back again tomorrow for another great interview. Until then, I'm Dave Lorenzo, and here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life. <laughs>